Be seated. Certainly glad that you're here today. If you're new here, we especially want to welcome you. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really excited about where we're going today. Um, if you're new, there is a card in the seat back in front of you. I'd love for you to fill it out, and you can uh, drop it in the give boxes to the right and to the left, on, and we'll contact you in a respectful way. Now, today is a unique Sunday because two reasons. First, Today is Church Planting Sunday, and we're launching a new sermon series looking at a church plant, a very young group of believers, but we're going to get there in just a moment. So one of the primary things that Jesus gave us after his death and resurrection was a commission. He gave us a mission as his followers, and one of the ways that we do that, when you think of missions, a lot of times you maybe think about some far-off land, some place that you would go to accomplish God's work where maybe they've never heard of Jesus before. And that is absolutely true. But also, um, we accomplish God's work in the context of a local mission called the church. And so as you think about missions, my hope for us as we look through this book and as we just consider what it means for us to be part of it is to reimagine what comes into our minds when we think about God's mission as being the local church. Some of you may have noticed whenever you were looking up our church online or passing by on the street, you saw this little part of our sign that says Acts 29. And today we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to be part of that. Primarily, it means that we're interested in planting churches. We want to continue the missionary work of Jesus Christ through planting other churches. We're grateful that this church was planted. And so every church that you've ever experienced, every church that you've ever been a part of, um, someone, God gave them a mission to plant that church. So I just want you to imagine for a moment the, the very first experience that you ever had of a church, someone... God gave them something in their heart to call them to, to plant a church. And so some of you maybe were part of planting this church just 14 years ago. How many of you guys have been around since the very beginning, 2007? How many of you have set up chairs and torn them down and set up the stage? Go ahead and raise your hand or set up some sound system. You remember before we even had a permanent facility, you can go keep, keep raising your hands. Y'all remember that? So first thing I want to say is thank you. Thank you. I'm so grateful that this church exists today. I'm grateful because I get to preach today in, in the context of this place and with this group of people that we call the church, Bellwether Church. And so thank you. I'm grateful. I'm grateful to God for empowering his people at the very beginning 14 years ago to plant this church. So I want us to take a moment and thank God that this church was planted and then uh, we're going to consider what it means for us to be a church planting church and to be part of a network that plants other churches. There's going to be a short video, and then we're going to open God's word together. So super grateful to be part of such a strong network of churches. I want to give you a few distinctives of Acts 29 just so that we know as a people, as we're inviting others into this congregation. First thing is this, we are absolutely passionate about gospel centrality. We don't want to give you one, two, threes of how to live a better life. We believe that the, that the gospel is from beginning to end the essential message of how we're transformed into Christ and his image. And so we, we, we don't think that it's just the ABCs of salvation. We believe it's the A to Z of the entire Christian life. So we're going to be um, really passionate about proclaiming the gospel here. Second thing is we embrace the sovereignty of God's grace in saving sinners. We believe God is at work in bringing dead people to life through the proclamation of this gospel. The third thing is that we, we recognize and rest on the necessity of empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit is at work and we see his power demonstrated through the church. 
We're deeply committed to spiritual and and moral equality of men and women and to men as responsible servant leaders in both home and church. That means that we believe that the genders are different and they have different roles, but we want them to be played completely to God's design in the context of the church and the home. And then the fifth thing is that we embrace a missionary understanding of the local church. We think that this is a primary place. If you want to get involved in what God's doing, the primary place where he's doing things is through the local church. It's right here. It's showing up in these spaces, in in our very own town. He's doing his work through the local church. It is his game plan. It's the primary place where he's demonstrating his power and gospel in the world. And so every single time a church is planted, we have to see it as a kingdom gain for us. That means that every church in this city, if they're being faithful, we don't see them as a threat to our mission. We see them as part of the necessary um, work of God to accomplish his mission in the world. And so we're not threatened by the other churches around us. We're like, praise God. Let's let them thrive. Let's pray for them and, and may God be praised in them. We want to pray for those other churches today. Listen, we may be a little bit further along than we were in 2007 when this church was planted. But there's some other churches in our city that are just getting started. They're still setting up and tearing down the way that most of you remember as as before we were in this space. And so I want us to take a moment and pray for the churches in this city and churches throughout the globe. Because on this morning, there's people gathering in homes and in, in temporary facilities, in schools, and they are all identified with their union with Christ. That makes them the local body of Christ. And so we're participating in something that goes far beyond the reaches of this space today. And we want to pause and acknowledge it, thank God for it, and pray for those other churches that that they would thrive and be faithful. So would you join me in praying that? And don't just listen to me pray. I'm really inviting you to pray. Father, I am so deeply thankful for this group of people, for the fact that you have planted your spirit here among a group of people, and you call this your church. Thank you. Father, I pray that you'd make us more and more and more faithful. And for all the churches that will come to be in the future months and and years, if you tarry, Lord, I pray that your hand would be on them, that you'd raise up young church planters, hopefully among us in our midst, that there would be young men and women that would give their lives for the sake of your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that your mission wouldn't stop with this service, but it would go out of these doors and then for years to come, the name of Jesus Christ would be known because of your work and Holy Spirit in this time and place, in this moment. Father, I pray for the churches that have existed for a very long time in this city. Many of them that maybe have been visited by the people in this room. And Father, I pray that you would prosper them, that they would be faithful to the gospel, that they'd be faithful to your word, that they would proclaim your death and resurrection regularly so that people might be saved and respond to you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work powerfully in other men preaching today. Those that are preaching all across this city, I pray that you'd bless them and that you would make yourself a blessing to everyone who hears your word proclaimed. And now as we turn our hearts towards your word in this space, I pray that you'd make us more faithful because of our time in your word today. And I pray this for your great namesake, Jesus. Speak to us. Amen. Now, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. That's where we're going to begin. 
And if you want to read everything from your copy of God's Word, we're also going to be in Acts chapter 17. So if you want to put a finger in both places, that's fine. All of the scripture is going to be on the screen today, and that's where we're going today. We're starting a new sermon series in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and I'm very excited, especially because it aligns with Church Planting Sunday, because we're going to look at how this church that we're going to read about was planted in Acts chapter 17. So let's begin by reading this and asking God to open our mind and hearts to his word. Starting in verse 1, it says this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Grace to you and peace. This is the word of the Lord. So today, as we launch into... 1 Thessalonians, I want us to, my primary goal is to answer these two questions. I want us to consider who's writing this letter, by whom it's being written, and who it's addressed to, the church at Thessalonica. So what can we learn from it? How was the church advancing both then and now? And what role might we play as we learn from them in this particular space? So we're going to consider a few things. First, Thessalonica, the missionaries. Who are these people that's describing being sent, the letters being sent from. We have stories of these men and the church back in Acts. First, I want to point out that these missionaries are people who are men who've been redeemed by God. The first one named is Paul. He's an apostle, apostle who was originally a prosecutor. Uh, uh, he was a persecutor of the church, sorry. And he, was a, he experienced a radical conversion. Now, if you can imagine with me somebody who was not just bent on destroying the church, he was bent on destroying every believer. He wanted this act of God to be snuffed out. He's basically like a terrorist to the church. And he goes from being a terrorist to a church planter, radically changed by the gospel, by this experience of Jesus Christ. He, met, he meets him on the road, and he's, trans, he's transformed. And he gets transformed into a church planter. So what is a church planter? A church planter is somebody who's proclaiming the gospel and he's trying to build up leaders in different towns so that they might go on proclaiming the gospel. And he's joined, so you first have Paul, then you got Silvanus, otherwise known as Silas, who worked alongside Paul. A lot of times he was described as Paul's scribe. He would have been writing whatever Paul dictated to him. And at this point, though, this letter is being written by Paul. He says it. So he's traveling with him. He's a faithful companion. He's willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's one of the things that we know about Silas. Um, there's a story of him being in jail and singing psalms and hymns together, which you can imagine. This guy's just a faithful fellow servant with Paul. He's walking alongside of him. And then lastly, you got Timothy. The story of Timothy, um, we first learn about him in Acts chapter 16. He had become a believer because his mother and grandmother had been teaching him the scriptures from the time that he was young. His father is a pagan, and somehow God reaches into his story, transforms his life, and he has a reputation of being a faithful man. That's how he's introduced in, Psalm, in Acts 16. So, who are these people? They're missionaries that have been redeemed by God. And what did they do? They were committed to planting churches. So that meant they went everywhere proclaiming the gospel, preaching the gospel over and over and over. And I want to answer the question, how did they do it? What was it like for them to proclaim this gospel all along as they went? So they were sent out from the church. They were commissioned as missionaries. This is their second trip. And as they're going, it describes this trip in Acts chapter 16. They're walking along, and there's a couple places where they have plans to go a certain way, 
But what I want you to notice is this group of men were directed by the Holy Spirit. They were receiving not only commission from God, they were receiving a guidance from him as they went. So as they're walking along, they thought, maybe we'll go here. And the Holy Spirit's like, no, 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 you can't go there. And then they thought, maybe we'll go here. And the Holy Spirit was like, no, 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 that's not where I have for you to go. They had big plans for God, but God didn't want them to go to the places they were intended. Look at Acts chapter 16. It's going to be on the screen. Verses 16, 6, and, and 7. It describes it like this. Forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Why in the world would the Holy Spirit forbid them to speak? They're excited about telling people about the gospel. Why? Well, God had another plan. Second part, verse 7. Then they attempted to go to, into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And why? Why is this so? Because God wanted to, them to go to a very specific place, Macedonia. So Paul goes to sleep. He has a vision in the night. This man comes to him, and he knows he's a Macedonian. Don't really know how, but somehow Paul recognizes this man is from Macedonia. And he says, look, we need your help. Paul wakes up the very next morning, and immediately he gets on the road to go where the Holy Spirit had directed him. He discerned that this was God's calling him. So they've been redeemed, transformed, they've been commissioned, and now they're just guided by the Spirit. They're saying, Lord, where would you have us to go? And that's how they land in Macedonia. Now, when they land there... <laughs> um, it is with great difficulty that they get there, okay? They get to Philippi first. They end up in prison. They get out of prison by some supernatural earthquake, and, and the jailer gets saved. It's an amazing story, and they're like, we better be scooting because people aren't liking us here. <laughs> they get scooting on, and then the next place they stop is Thessalonica. Now, look at Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Polonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So first I want to describe to you what this city was like. The province of Macedonia, this would have been their capital city. It was a port city. There was a major highway that ran through it. It was a happening place. Lots of commerce going on. Lots of pagan worship going on. They had their own idols there. It is a local capital. And this place was the seat of local political power. The Romans would conquer places, and then in a lot of places, they would allow them to maintain their own form of worship. They would allow them to maintain a degree of their culture, and then slowly they would introduce uh, their own culture. But they wanted to allow them to, to maintain worship, so they had pagan worship. They had Jews that were worshiping uh, the God of the Old Testament and the Bible. And then you've got all of this, this group of people together for political reasons, different worshiping, different commerce, all happening in the same city. And they show up in this place, major port, major commerce, major influence. And in the midst of this, uh, this place would have been a very sexually confused place. They worship Dionysius, who, I don't know if you know your Greek mythology, but he was the god of wine and drink. And they also worship Aphrodite. They would have um, parades in the streets honoring these two idols, these pagan idols. Wine and drink and the goddess of love and sexuality. So you mix the two of them together and you can imagine what kind of city this was. It made Mardi Gras look like a homeschool convention. Okay? <laughs> they were all, and this is where they've been called to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And you find the full story of that in Acts 17 and it goes on to say they're traveling with these companions and they show up, verse 2. Paul went in, as was his custom... 
And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So a couple things about their mission. You guys understand the city. I want to explain a couple things about how they uh, arrived there as missionaries. Paul's custom is described here. That means that what he would regularly do is show up in a city and find a place where he could proclaim the message of Jesus, first to the Jews, right, and then to the Greeks. That's, that was his practice. First, he shows up in the synagogue, and for three weeks, he's proclaiming this message, or at least three weeks, three Sabbath days. And the, the fact that this is his custom, I don't want that to be lost on us. That means he's describing this was his method of ministry. He would show up, he would open the scriptures to them, and he would reason with them. So his method, he reasoned with them. He didn't begin with his testimony or experience, though he could have. He had a really powerful testimony. He began by opening, opening up God's word to them and saying, okay, how does this show us the Christ? They would have been opening up the Old Testament, the scrolls. And as he began to walk through it, he was reasoning with them and proving to them from the scriptures that Jesus Christ had come and that it was necessary for him to die and it was necessary for him to rise from the dead. Now, before I get too far ahead of myself on the content, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Here's the powerful part of what he's doing. We believe the scriptures to be God's word. And so one of the reasons that we're regularly going to open God's word is because we believe that it's the only authority that's worth listening to, right? So anything I have to say, if it's, not, if it's coming from Nathan, I mean, you can take it or leave it, okay? But if it's coming from God's word, we have to pay attention to it. And that's exactly what Paul did. He opened up the scriptures. And we believe the scriptures are living and active. In Hebrews chapter 4, it describes the scriptures in this way. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. In other words, the scriptures are able to pierce down to the core of what you're thinking, how you're feeling, who you are. Verse 13 of chapter 4 in Hebrews says, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In other words, when we open the scriptures, it not only exposes us to the truth, it also exposes ourselves. It reveals the reality that all of us are completely exposed to God. Listen, if you came in here hiding things, there's absolutely, absolutely nothing that you've successfully hidden from God. He knows everything. And his word is not only exposing us to truth, it's showing us that we're exposed to the great judge of the universe, God, our holy founder, creator, savior. He sees everything. He knows everything. And the good news is what he revealed from the scriptures was the necessity of Christ's death. And that is good news because he's explaining and proving and opening the scriptures. Look at verse 3 in Acts 17. What is he explaining to them? He's explaining, verse 3, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, in order for us to understand the gravity of this necessity of Christ's suffering, it first has to expose our need for his suffering. 
There's a personal connection to his suffering. That's how we know that we're redeemed and saved, that we come to this realization that Jesus, yes, it was necessary for him to die, and that necessity was for me. It's a powerful connection that we cannot miss and we can't dismiss. The power of his suffering, there has to be a personal connection for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ that this suffering was necessary, not just for the sins of the world, but for the sins of me personally. Me. He died in my place. And so you can imagine Paul opening up the scriptures and saying, look, this is why it was necessary for Christ to die. And they're thinking, oh, it really is necessary for him to die. Jesus is the Christ. In other words, he's the anointed one, the Messiah. He resurrected from the grave. And it's not what you hoped. Look, there, maybe those Jews in the room were thinking, well, I thought we were getting a political leader. I thought we could have like a military leader that would lead us out and Rome would fall. And that's not what you thought, but this is the deliverer that you needed. It's not what you would have hoped. Maybe someone to deliver you from political oppression. No, it's not that. But this is a spiritual Messiah, an ultimate Messiah, very similar to what Christ had explained last week on the road to Emmaus. You remember that? When he says, this is why it was necessary for me to die and to rise again, to enter into my glory. He's saying the same things here. It's necessary for Christ to die in order to enter into his glory. What that means for everyone in this room who believes. So if you're a believer in this room and you're saying, hey, yes, I belong to Jesus, He is mine. I love him. I love what he's done for me. Here's what that means. It means that we've already seen our need to be reconciled to God. Some of us who don't see a need to be reconciled to God, you would not know the necessity of the cross. But for everyone who sees that there's this great chasm between us and the God of the universe, you look at the cross differently because you say, not only was it necessary, it was necessary for me. There was a provision, as much as my need and the necessity of it, there was a provision that God made to be reconciled to him. There's a hope for the second arrival of Jesus, which we're going to learn more about as they learn how to suffer and die through this book. Hope even in death that those who are suffering, even in the loss of death, there's hope beyond the grave because it doesn't just start then, it starts now. We can long for him to arrive and he's already arrived. So, This glorious message of Jesus Christ was explained. He opens the scriptures, and then what happened? Now, the reason that he came to this town was in the hope that some might receive this message. Some might be persuaded, and that's exactly what happens. Now, we believe, before I move on to how they responded, we believe not only that God's word is authoritative, but when the gospel is proclaimed, something supernatural happens. In Romans 1.16 Paul said this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So in other words, there's something that can happen when the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. It can, people can hear it and their dead hearts are brought to life. There's something amazing that happens through the proclamation of the gospel, not because of who's proclaiming it, not because of the power with which they proclaim it or the eloquency, praise God, <laughs> It's because of the truth of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit uses that truth being proclaimed to transform people. Some people bring themselves to the table and the Holy Spirit says, hey, I want you to see this. 
I want you to hear it for the very first time. And so in the midst of persecution, the midst of fleeing, this group of people respond to the message of the gospel and they are persuaded. That's how it describes them. They're persuaded. So now I want to move on to looking at what is the church at Thessalonica? Who's receiving this letter that we're going to be looking at for 12 weeks? This group of people is first described in verse 4 of chapter 17. It says, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out, of the, out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they had heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So, a couple things. The church. First, I want to observe what's going on with the church. Who are they? The first way that it describes them in verse 4 is that they're persuaded. There's something in their minds and hearts that cognitively says, yep, that's true. This is absolutely true. They're persuaded. Who are they? They're a collection of people, some more influential than others. But all of them join up with Paul and Silas and Timothy, and their response is not some sentimental display of fickle commitment. Okay? How do I know that? Because 1 Thessalonians starts describing how they received the word. How did they receive it? Look, they received this message of the gospel at great expense to themselves. It was really costly for them to be persuaded. It was not like, hey, I think this sounds pretty good. I want to get on something good. And then when times got hard, they walked away. No, they were committed because they saw the power of what was being uh, declared. This is how their salvation is described in 1 Thessalonians uh, 1.5. It says this, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And then it goes on to say in verse 6 that you received it with joy and affliction. So I want to make a few observations to how they became the church. Not only were they persuaded, something came over them with great power and conviction, with full conviction. So much so that what they were about to have to endure, they had the power to endure it. So they didn't just receive these words. They received something else, some full conviction. The Holy Spirit came over them and they received something with power. And the reason that you can tell that they received something with power is because they were immediately persecuted. They're born again, but they're born again into a serious battle. And that's the same for every person in this room. If you've been born again, you wake up to spiritual new life and you find yourself in a battle. It is a real battle. And that's exactly what happens with them. Now, you might not be be persecuted right now, but the authentic church has, always has, and always will be fought against. We have a very, very real enemy And even if we're not fighting some physical persecution, well, some of you are like, wait, you don't know how hard it was to get my kids here to to church this morning. It was like a physical persecution. Look, 
there are real, there are real spiritual enemies to the work of God and to the church. And it does sound strangely familiar what these enemies did, didn't it? They said, they first started speaking half-truths about them. They're saying, look, they don't even want to submit to the government. Does that sound familiar? They spoke half-truths about them. They exaggerated threats. Said, we can't let these guys go. They worship some other king. They don't bow to our king. They made the, the threats of the church more exaggerated. And they disturbed the peace more than the church actually disturbed the peace. Isn't that interesting? The people that were accusing them of disturbing the peace were disturbing the peace more than the church. <laughs> and so they have to flee by night. And, and though these people, the Jews that were disturbed and threatened and jealous, they might have seen it as some short-term success. Or like, yeah, we got them to go. Listen, the church has always thrived under persecution. It has always done very, very well when people are, are blatantly against it. So here's what happens. Paul moves on. After three weeks of planting a church, you can imagine how young these believers are. And he walks away because of the persecution and he goes on to Berea and he teaches the gospel there and proclaims it. And he cannot bear it. I mean, it is just eating him up inside that these baby believers, these newcomers to the faith are sitting there. He has no idea. What are, what are they doing? Are they enduring? Are they okay? And so we find out what he does. What would you have done? Verse, uh, in 1 Thessalonians, it describes what he does, and he sends Timothy back. It says this in uh, chapter 3, verse 5. For this reason, I could bear it no longer, so I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now that's what, that's what spiritual investment looks like. It looks like restless nights where you wonder, the people that you've invested in, are they going to make it? That's what it looks like. And there's people right now, if you're walking with Jesus who've invested in you, and this is what it looks like for them. They're wondering, Lord, I hope they make it. They're praying for you. And then there's people, if you've walked with Jesus for any period of time, that you're praying for and you wonder, how are they doing? Where are they at? So what do he do? He sends Timothy back. Verse 6. It'll be on the screen. So now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, we long to see you. So in other words, it's a really good news kind of day when Timothy comes back and he's like, listen, they're doing fine. They love God. They're doing awesome. Now, he had a few things he had questions about. First of all, what do, what do we need to tell them about what happens when you die? Because some of them had died, okay? And so we're going to get to that instruction. The other thing is, as I described the city earlier, you can imagine that leaving all of this sexual confusion that was happening in this city was really tough. And so later on in the book, they deal with some of that, okay? So he answers some questions, but for the most part, Paul is going, y'all are doing awesome, you guys are doing great. You don't even need anybody to write you concerning brotherly love. You just need to keep on, in, keep on increasing in it more and more and more. And that's one of the reasons I love this book. I love this book of God's word because he's looking back on these people he's so invested in. And he's saying, look, you just need to go more and more. Keep hungering after Jesus. And so I want to ask and answer a question. What does it mean that he addresses them at the as the church at Thessalonica? It first means that this report confirmed what he had hoped. 
It confirmed that they actually did have authentic faith in Jesus. Yes, it's not a place. It's a group of people who are redeemed by God. And so what is the church? The church, it isn't a building. It's a collection of believers who've been rescued by God, who are connected to one another and empowered on God's mission. And so as we move from this reality, I just want to pause for a minute and ask ourselves that same question. What does it mean to be called the church at Bellwether? What does that mean? What does it mean for each of you as individuals to be part of this local body? That might mean a lot of things in our context, but it never means less than this, that you've been rescued by God, that you were doomed and he said, you're mine. You belong to me. And he rescued you, not just for yourself, but he placed you into a family with other believers so you could play the role that God showed you all of this love and he put you in a family so you could demonstrate what you've received to all the people around you. So you don't just belong to God if you're a Christian. You belong to the people that you're connected to in the church. It's a really important concept because he's not just calling individuals, he's placing individuals into a family called the church. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 describes it like this. You, that's you, that's anyone who's a church member, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once, this is everybody's story, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. He has claimed you as his own. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the promise primary identifying factor for us as the church is that we, were, we needed to be rescued and God said, I'll rescue you. Amen. That is the primary thing. And the second thing is that he put us into a family. You once weren't a people. You were just out there on your own, isolated. And he said, now you're part of my people. And now he's giving us this mission. So we have a shared story of rescue. We're connected to one another. We're empowered on the mission. We have a common message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and this mission to make disciples who know what it means to belong to God's people. And so as we move forward, I want to I end with two things. God is still advancing the church. That's the first thing. He's still advancing the church. This story of this church coming into fruition, it isn't over because we got a building, we got chairs now that stay in the same place. God is still building the church. He's still doing the work of building up a people who've been rescued by him and who are living out in his power and his love to the world around us. He's still advancing the church. The church is a group of people, yes, that have been rescued and we're connected to one another and we're empowered, but it's also people where the lost are being welcomed in and the welcomed are being transformed into Christ's image and the transformer beginning to declare his riches and his excellencies to the world. And so if you belong to this church, you have a role to play in God advancing the church in the world. He, do, he doesn't gather the church so we can come and receive nice things on Sunday. He gathers us to be a people that we might be invested in one of those lives. So uh, here's, here's the hard part, okay? It's going to cost you something. It does. It requires sacrifice. It requires laying down all of your particulars and looking at the people around you with more generosity than judgment. It, look, it requires looking at the people around you and saying, God, are you putting me in family with them? I wouldn't have chose them, but you chose them and they're mine, okay? It looks like looking at all the differences and saying, Lord, thank you that you're, you're making us a people 
claimed by your grace where the lost are welcomed, the welcome are being transformed, and those that are transformed are declaring the excellencies of God's grace. And so God is advancing the church, and I wonder what role do you play in it? Sometimes we treat the church kind of like a restaurant, you know? Here's what I mean. You come in and say, that was a nice service. I like that. I'll come back later to get another bite, okay? We have friends in our, in our home right now, and it's really great to see because we need the church to be the kind of place where they know where your Tupperware is. You know, they come in, they start loading the dishwasher, and they know where to put away the leftovers. The church needs to be that kind of people. We don't come in and say, here's my tip at the door. We can't be that kind of people. Because God isn't calling us to be a collected group of consumers. God's calling us to be his church, a redeemed, rescued people. We're saying, okay, what part do I play in one another's lives? What role do I play in encouraging you? And what role do you play in provoking me to love and good deeds? Because that's what the church looks like. Now, this group of people, <laughs> I don't know exactly how they played it out, but I can tell you this, they were persecuted right from the beginning. They stepped into a battle as soon as they were born again, they were born into a, a real battle that caused them great sacrifice. And this is the, the last thing I want to say. The prize is still worth the price. God is still advancing the church, and the prize is still worth the price. Some of you are wondering at the end of the day, is it worth it? Some of you walk home today tired from working with kids. Or your spouse had to get here early because of some way that they're serving. And you'll ask the question, is it worth it? And here's what, I want you to, here's what I want you to know. Christ has always been worthy of whatever sacrifices you've made and whatever sacrifices he's inviting you into, he will always be worthy. He is so worthy. Sometimes I, I made the comment about <laughs> the restaurant and about 13 years ago, my wife and I got this amazing trip to Italy, okay? Somebody said, we're going to give you flights to go. And then and we're like, we can't afford to go to Italy. Where are we going to stay? And somebody said, look, we're going to take care of where you stay. So now all we had to pay for was our meals, okay? We're like, okay, we got to budget this. We got to be so careful. <laughs> we got to be so careful what we spend, okay? Like all we have to pay for is the food. So we show up in Rome after all night flight, you know, we get there and we take a nap and we go out to the very first place. They saw us coming. I mean, they must have saw us coming from a mile away. And we're looking for the least expensive thing on the menu, okay? We're looking for the very least expensive thing. Now, I don't read Italian. I'm reading over and I'm thinking, this looks like the least amount of dollars or euros or whatever. So we ordered the sea bass. It turns out it was that amount per ounce of the sea bass, Okay. So they just kept bringing out appetizers, and we're like, sure, I guess this is free. The bread comes, too. Then there's some cheese, and now they bring an antipasta, whatever. Okay, so we just took it all in. We're like, we're like, okay, and they slip us the bill, and on the very first night, we had spent half of our budget for eating for the whole week we were there. It was gone. We're like, what just happened? <laughs> what just happened? There was nothing you can do about it, but it was an unforgettable lesson about the price that you're going to pay and evaluating. And here's what, here's what I want you to know. I promise you that the price that you're going to pay to follow Jesus is more than you can imagine. It will be. But the prize is so much more worth whatever you will give up. It is so worth it. And you're not going to walk away wondering, was that worth it? 
And, and it may be delayed. <laughs> it may be very delayed when you see the repercussions of that great price. But it will always be worthy. And I want to end with this quote <clears throat> from a book about the persecuted church. It says this, If we spend our lives so afraid of suffering, so adverse to sacrifice, that we avoid even the risk of persecution or crucifixion, then we might never discover the true wonder, joy, and power of a resurrection faith. Ironically, Avoiding suffering could be the very thing that prevents us from partnering deeply with the risen Jesus. Isn't it true? Listen, if, you've, if you're spending your life trying to avoid whatever it is that God's inviting you into, I want to invite you to repent with great joy. With great joy. Because whatever the cost is, it's worth it. Let me pray for you and then we'll sing. Father, thank you for your word today. I pray that it would transform us, that your gospel would not only persuade us, but it would come with the Holy Spirit with great power and that it would convince us full conviction that we might follow you um, to the end. And I pray that whatever it is that you're calling us to give up or inviting us to participate in, I pray that we would see the great joy of those sacrifices so that we could partner deeply with you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.